I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hello there. I am your casual criminalist, Simon. What happens here if you're new? One of my writers, in this case, Arnaldo, writes me a script. And uh, I'm going to read it. I've never read it before. Uh, it's it's called A Cold Read. You're going to... We, we're going to go on an adventure together. It's going to be fun. This one is The Swine, The Falcon, and The Puppy. A mafia horror story. Or... I've got a t- t- title options, Arnaldo. Okie dokie. Or Mavia's Murderous Swine. The Rise and Fall of Giovanni Brusca. Okay. Uh, I get a feeling this one's going to be a bit of a pronunciation nightmare. However, however, Arnaldo is Italian, so I trust he's going to uh, be including some of these pronunciations. There's a note for me here. It says, don't read this out loud. Okay, I won't read it. Oh, I see. I see. Um, it's basically, there's nothing secret here. It's just Arnaldo has provided me a guide. It's like a little family tree with the characters so uh, that I could not get too lost. However, Arnaldo, I'm looking at this and you've chosen like font minus seven in terms of size. Even if I zoom in super hard on these people, like to the most my iPad can zoom, I can barely see them. I can't read their names. I, I can literally do it if I get this close. And it says Giuseppe Damatico, his son, the pun. Okay, look, I understand that it's going to get a little bit complicated, but let's try and use our big brains and we'll try and keep up. It's the evening of the 20th of August, 1977. We're in the main square of a small village just outside Corleone province of Palermo in Sicily. Even if you're not an expert in organized crime, even if you're not a film buff, you should recognize the name. The name of a beautiful town sadly associated with the heinous acts of a few monstrous mobsters. Two friends are casually strolling through the square back and forth as Italians like to do in breezy summer evenings. One of them, Filippo Costa, is a teacher. He's helping his mate Giuseppo Russo write his memoirs, of which he has plenty. Because Giuseppe has a very peculiar job. He is a colonel in the Carabinieri, one of Italy's main police forces. As such, Colonel Russo has been a constant thorn in the side of the Corleonesi, a most violent family, quickly rising up the ladder of power under the guise of Toto Rina. First, Rina was simply known as Shorty. Now, he is feared as the Beast. Oh, you know if your nickname's the Beast, it's either very bad or very good. It's like, you're an absolute beast, mate. It's like, yes, yes. Or uh, you could be like that guy, the Beats Beast of Sonnets, who locked people's heads in wooden boxes like a f***ing psycho. Eventually, he shall be revered as the boss of all bosses. Recently, Rousseau has been investigating Rena's involvement in the construction of a local dam. Whenever the state initiates a tender for public construction work, mafia syndicates are quick to bribe and intimidate their way into gaining a government contract. There is billions to be made. And if there's something Shorty loves, it's, well, billions. But if there's something he may love even more, it's the sight of a dead enemy. As Filippo and Giuseppe pace through the square, a tiny Fiat 128 enters the scene, squeaking under the weight of four heavyset men. The colonel is a man used to violence, and maybe has guessed what is about to happen. But there is little that he can do 
to react. The four men climb out of the Fiat, brandishing 38 caliber handguns. And then muzzles flash, each bullet piercing through Giuseppe and Filippo's skin tells the same message. This is the last time you mess with the Corleonesi. Wait, why are they just killing him now? If, I feel, if you're a policeman who's a thorn in the side of a mafia family, I either feel, in this case, he's protected. Like, there's some reason they're not killing him because the retribution will be too much. Or, uh, I, I don't know, there's a reason he's not dead. But why suddenly decide to kill him? Surely you'd kill him when he, you know, if he's a big thorn in your side, just pop him off way earlier. Why would you wait until now? The four gunmen squeeze their large frames into the Fiat and drive off into the night. One pair of eyes is particularly indifferent. Cold and unflinching. Those are the eyes of the youngest member of the hit squad. He's barely 20, but this is not the first time he's killed, and he will kill again. He will rise to become the Corleonese's most violent enforcer. He will become the hideous swine, the People Slayer. May your flesh burn. Before he was affectionately known as the Swine, or the Slayer, <laughs> charming. The gentleman we just met was called Giovanni Brusca. In today's story, we're going to focus on some of his more infamous crimes. But Mafia stories seldom linear, and they involve a colorful cast of players with very complicated names, relationships, and web of interests. And I'll just add, very complicated names for non-Italians to pronounce. Like, all of these names are Giovanni, Giovessa, Giuseppe, Giuseppe. Dominic de Coco. Why, Italy? Why? I guess they look at us and they're like, all right, well, what's up with John, Jake, Jack? Jen. Others that I'm forgetting. We do it as well, I'm sure. This may be why Mafia trials drag on for years and prosecutors have a hard time understanding what's going on and who has done what. Someone is at my door. I'm back. It was the gas man. The people who come to my building think I'm some sort of f***ing concierge and I hate it. Because there's a... Uh, sorry, this is completely off. It's got nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Uh, it's just literally a chance for me to have a little rant. Uh, because there's like a panel of buttons. There's like a panel of buttons that ring all of the different uh, units in my building. And I just happen to have one that is above and different because I have a big unit. And uh, I guess it was like added later or whatever. And everyone thinks, oh yeah, I'll just press the big button because I need general access to the building. And it's like, <laughs> stop it. I'm not a concierge. Anyway, onwards. Rand's over. I apologize from the start if you'll experience the same feeling as I start piling up difficult sounding names onto your short term memory. So let's start with the first name, Don Manuel. <laughs> oh no, this is like, it's going to get difficult. I'm sorry, that's it. It's just going to be difficult. There's no like, and I'm going to try and make it easy for you. It's just like, no, 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 let's just get cracking. <laughs> I hope your big brain can handle it. So let's start with the first name, Don Bernardo Brusco, a mid-ranking mobster in the Corleone gang and a close friend of Toto the Beast Rena. On the 20th of February 1957, Bernardo welcomed Giovanni, his firstborn son. Oh my god, I'm already lost. Who's Giovanni? Bernardo welcomed Giovanni. Okay, Giovanni and his two brothers did not have a typical mafia upbringing, at least not in their early years. Their parents encouraged them to study hard, attend church, and work in the fields. At the same time, Dad Bernardo sent some, let's say, mixed signals. On one occasion, Giovanni's much younger brother Enzo had insisted that he wanted to dress up as a Coast Guard officer for a costume party. He then ran to his father to show off how dapper he looked in his little uniform, but Don Bernardo was furious. He tore apart the costume, slapped his son, and warned him never to dress up as a cop again. So it seems a bit serious, doesn't it? It's like, it'd be like, why are you dressed up as a ghost? How dare you? F ghosts! They're not, they're not real. 
That's how I'm going to react when my kids are dressed up for Halloween. <laughs> not really, because I'm not a prick. As the 1970s began and the boys grew older, Don Bernardo continued steering them towards a life of crime. When Rena the Beast launched an all-out war against the ruling families in Palermo, Brusca Sr. offered him shelter from his rival's death squads, and Giovanni was enrolled as an errands boy, keeping Rena informed and well-fed. In his hideout, the role gradually morphed into more sinister assignments. Wait, so this dude's son is like looking after the dude who was being hunted by another mafia family that he decided to have a war against, right? Is complicated, isn't it, Arnaldo? Is is let's just let's just carry on. Hopefully it'll be fine. By the age of 19, he had committed his first two homicides. He shot his second victim outside a movie theater in his hometown. After their murder, Brusco went home, hid his weapon, changed his clothes, and returned to the cinema, in his own words, to enjoy the spectacle of the Carabinieri's arrival on the crime scene. Uh-oh. If you've done crimes, don't stick around and don't come back. We all know the rules. I feel the rules for ma mob people are different. There's just slightly different rules. This became a sort of trademark of his returning to the scene to enjoy the spectacle. The young Giovanni impressed the Corleone bosses with his criminal qualities. He was a cold, calculating killer without a drop of empathy nor remorse in his veins. He wasn't an impulsive murderer, preferring to carefully ponder and plan his actions. That is why, in 1976, Rina and Don Bernardo decided to make him a made man. He was to be inducted into the family. Wait, wasn't this dude his son? Isn't he already, like, part of his family? Yes. <laughs> I had to check. I see what you mean. Ah! This happened according to a codified ritual. Giovanni was invited to a dinner with other mobsters. One by one, they asked him if he was up for killing in the name of Cosa Nostra. Then Rina himself asked him to swear allegiance to the family and pricked his finger with a needle. Brasca squeezed some drops of his own blood onto a small prayer card depicting a popular saint. Rina set the card on fire and ordered Brusca to hold onto it as the flames consumed it. Finally, the Beast of Corleone recited the final ritual. If you betray Cosa Nostra, may your flesh burn as this card is now burning. May their flesh dissolve. Brusca was assigned by Rina to a 12-strong elite hit squad, quickly rising through the ranks. Between 1977 and 1984, Brusca perpetrated, planned, ordered, or conspired to perpetrate a string of targeted assassinations against rival families, government officials, and police officers. In later life, he admitted he could not quantify the exact number of people who had died because of him. According to his estimation, his kill count was probably more than 150, but surely less than 200. This must make him one of the most deadly people uh, in history. Earlier on, this slayer of men developed a trademark style. If a victim was marked for immediate execution, Brusca would lead attacks involving at least three mobsters, unleashing volleys of high-caliber pistols against their victims. But if the mob needed to extract information from their prey, that's when the swine really got creative. His favorite torture methods were to pull out the victim's fingernails. Oh. Woo-wee! That's not... This is one of those, like, nails on chalkboards, ironically, feelings, isn't it? It's like, oh! Ah, oh, don't, know, And then proceed to break their limbs one by one. Whatever the result of the interrogation, there could only be one possible final chapter. The prisoner was strangled by a nylon cord by Brusca as four associates pinned him or her down on the floor. The next step was to dispose of the body, and in his own words, quote, I've dissolved bodies in acid. I've roasted corpses on big grills. I've buried the remains after digging graves with an earth mover. Brusca's first notable hit was the murder of Colonel Russo massacred on an August night alongside his biographer friend. Unfortunately, more lawmen would fall in the line of duty. The Slayer's next high-caliber target was Magistrate Rocco 
Kenichi, a fearless prosecutor who had created a pool of crack anti-mafia magistrates. I feel like any of these things is like, you're in some mafia town and you're a judge and you're honest. It's like, ah, oh, you're kind of f***ed the police. It's like, you, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know. I admire these people. It's like they're, they're always the heroes in movies and stuff. And it's like, oh my God, I'm such a coward. I'd be like, no, I can't do it. I don't want to be murdered and have my family murdered. And I know you're horrible criminals doing horrible things, but I don't want this. No. <laughs> I was making a video for Into the Shadows the other day. And it was about this big, like basically the Russian version of like a military contractor called Blackwater, except a thousand times worse. And they'd like been killing journalists and stuff. And I'm like, this i'm not making a video about this are you insane i don't want to be thrown off a balcony <laughs> ah no and it's also one of those ones where it's like you youtube search it and no one's made a video about this and you're like what's up with that what's up with that i think everyone you know is like don't do that because they'll kill you and then like you've got to wait for some brave journalist who's i don't know also more protected or something <laughs> it's like fucking hell you don't want to you don't want to it's too scary Brusco was instrumental in the planning and preparation of a terror-like attack which put an end to Kenichi's crusade. He and his accomplices stuffed a small Fiat with 75 kilograms of explosives and parked it outside the magistrate's house in Palermo. At 8am on the 29th of July 1983, the bomb went off, triggered via remote control by another member of Rena's elite squad. Mr. Kenichi, his two bodyguards, and a fourth victim died in the blast. With Kenichi gone, Brusco and Coliniosi directed their cold wrath at the most dangerous magistrate in the anti-mafia pool, Giovanni Falcone. Yeah, it's like, it's, and then you're one of those magistrates that, oh no, all the other magistrates have been blown up and I'm the worst one of them to, to, the, to the bad guys. It's like, you're so f***ed. Leave town. Go live in a bunker somewhere. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Stitch Fix. Shopping for new clothes can be time-consuming and stressful. Tell me about it. I get no joy out of that. I know some people are like, oh, I like going clothes shopping. I'm like, that is not me. I don't like it. I always got, I'm always like, yeah, I love the concept of it. Let's go buy some new clothes. This will be fun. And then like, I can't find anything I want. It doesn't fit right. I don't really like it. I don't know what looks good. I'm an idiot. Come on, help. Well, don't worry. Stitch Fix will do all of the work for you so that you can spend more time doing the things you love when it comes to looking good stitch fix have got you covered you could say goodbye to endless browsing and say hello to fresh picks curated for your size and for your taste it's easy to get started go set up a stitch fix profile answer a few easy questions about what you like to wear what you don't and whether you're willing to try new styles how risky are you you feeling experimental try a new style <laughs> I feel like now at 35, it'd be a bit weird if I tried a new style. But hey, you know, I'm not against it. Maybe I'll maybe I'll get that like I don't know. Start start wearing. Uh, I can't even think of a good example to be honest. No, I'm just setting my ways. I'll just be like Stitch Fix. No, just more of what I like, please. But you know, whatever you're into. 
Stitch Fix's experts then go to work to find items exclusively for you, hand-picked so unique to your size, style, and in your budget, importantly, making it the best way to discover clothes that make you look and feel your best. They'll send you five pieces to try. You keep what you love and send back what you don't. Easy. Shipping, returns, exchanges are easy and free and it's not a subscription thing you don't have to set up automatic deliveries there's no hidden fees nothing like that so sign up for stitch fix you can get their latest pieces for women's men women men and kids sign up today stitchfix.com slash casual and you'll get 20 dollars off your first purchase that's stitchfix.com slash casual 20 dollars off your first purchase this is a limited item offer purchase within two days of sign up and now back to today's episode a tale of two giovannis Falcone is an apt surname for a hunter of mafioso, as it could be translated as falcon or hawk. But in this case, Giovanni the swine saw Giovanni the falcon as his prey, and he took personal care of stalking him. In August of 1983, Brusca found out which cafe supplied the Palace of Justice. Every morning, a small van would leave the cafe, bringing coffee and croissants for the magistrate's breakfast. Hence his first proposal, how about we use a similar van, stuff it with TNT, and send it crashing against the palace. The plan was rejected. As it lacked precision. Brusca's next idea was to launch an all-out attack with bazookas against the magistrate's office. Wait, wasn't the first? It was, why was the first thing rejected? Oh, because it lacked precision. Maybe we should use a bazooka then. Famously precise. <laughs> this idea was also shot down by his superiors. Surprise, surprise. Years went by and Brusca continued to rise in the organization, destined to supplant his dad Bernardo as a local area boss. Authorities took notice of this heavy-set, ordinary-looking yet ferocious criminal. But they had little evidence to convict him. All they had were the confessions of an ex-boss turned informant, Tommaso Buschetta. Based on his allegations, Giovanni the Swine was subject to a judiciary measure called compulsory stay. Basically, he was confined to a small island whilst authorities found evidence to bring him to trial. But even from this exile, Giovanni the Swine continued plotting the death of Giovanni the Falcon. The magistrate was a keen swimmer, so Brusca and his gang considered targeting his favorite swimming pool in Palermo, but the plan was abandoned as Falcona was protected by a sizable police escort. Falcona and his wife also enjoyed swimming in the Mediterranean and spent holidays in a villa by the sea. Brusca's men laid a bag of explosives on the shore, ready to blow up when the magistrate was ready to take a dive. It sounds like, uh, there was a plan to assassinate Castro. The CIA were like, how are we going to kill Castro? And they're like, we'll put a bomb in a shell. So what? Because Castro loved diving. So they're like, they'll find one of his favorite diving spots. They'll go out there, they'll put a bomb in a big seashell. Castro will be like, oh, look, a seashell. And he swims down, he touches in, it blows up and it kills him. It didn't work. It sounds like this is where they got some inspiration. All the while, the Mafia Hunter and his colleagues continue dealing deadly blows to Cosa Nostra. As a result of their investigations, 460 bosses and soldiers have been arrested and faced with the so-called Maxi Trial. This trial was to be concluded in January 1992. 346 mafioso would be convicted of a total of 2,665 years in prison. But even before that sentence, the Corleone gang felt pummeled into a corner by prosecutors. It was time for them to strike back, and they would do so with unheard ferocity. Season of Terror In 1991, Brusca escaped from his compulsory stay and went on the lam. While underground, he and other hitmen planned a campaign of terror bombings against institutions. One of the underbosses, Vincenzo Milazzo, dared to oppose the plan. Too bold, too risky, too ruthless. 
He was the first one to pay. On Rena's orders, Brisker and five acolytes kidnapped Milazzo, tortured him for days, and eventually shot him in the head. But that wasn't enough. The hit squad proceeded to murder Vincenzo's brother and finally his pregnant girlfriend, 23-year-old Anatella Bonomo. She implored the killers to have mercy, if not for her, at least for her unborn baby, but Brisker would have none of that and he strangled her. Oh my god, this guy's intense. So not only are you killing someone like a fellow mafia organization person who just doesn't like your plan for being too aggressive, but then you also kill his family. Brilliant. Dead. With internal opposition wiped out, the Slayer laid out his tactical plan to erase from existence their most dangerous foe, Giovanni Falcone. In early 1992, the magistrate had been promoted to a position at the Ministry of Justice in Rome, but every Thursday he flew back to Palermo for a long weekend. Brusca studied his movements. The magistrate landed in the Punta Raisi airport, where a police escort would pick him up. They would then drive him at speed towards central Palermo, crossing the town of Capaci. There, a stretch of highway had been laid over a drainage canal. Brusca saw an opportunity. His hit squad could pack the canal with explosives and set them off with a remote control. The Slayer did not leave anything to chance. He procured 335 kilograms of Semtex and TNT and divided them in 13 barrels. <laughs> Wasn't this guy he's supposed to be like being watched by the police on an island? He escapes the island and no one's picked up on the fact that he's buying over 300 kilograms of Semtex. I mean, dude, that is a lot of bomb. He then tested the remote control by setting off old photography flashbulbs as stand-ins for the bombs. He realized there was a slight delay between him flicking the switch on the remote and the flashes going off, so based on the average speed at which the escort traveled, he calculated the exact time at which to activate the explosive device. His men took care of laying out a marker of sorts. They placed a fridge by the main road at the right distance from the mined stretch of road. When the first car of the motorcade drove by this fridge, Busca would flick the switch, ensuring the explosion happened right under the magistrate's car. On the 23rd of May 1992, Falcone landed at Punta Raisa. The mafioso staking out the airport alerted Brusca via radio. The magistrate and his wife had been picked up by escort and were on their way. Brusca and his accomplice, Nino Joe, were standing on a hill just outside Capaci when the magistrate's car drove by the fridge. Joe shouted, Go! But Brusca, for once in his life, hesitated. The cars were driving slower than usual. Joe shouted again, Go! Only at the third go! Nebraska flipped the switch. The 13 barrels filled with explosives detonated one after the other, releasing a rolling wave of deafening thunder, flames, smoke, and debris. Pulverized asphalt, car wreckage, and body parts were lifted into the sky and then fell like toxic hail over the crater where the road had once been. Brusker himself later admitted being shocked by the violence of the deflagration. He told Joey, What happened? What the f have I done? Well, let me tell you what the f you've done. The first car of the convoy, carrying three officers, was flung tens of meters away into an olive grove. All three died on the spot. The second car, carrying Falcone and his wife Francesca, smashed against a wall of asphalt that had been lifted up by the blast. Both passengers were violently ejected through the windscreen and suffered massive internal injuries. The magistrate and his wife survived the impacts, but only for a few hours. They both succumbed to internal bleeding that very evening. When they heard the news, Brusca, Brina, and other underbosses uncorked bottles of champagne to celebrate their victory. The spearhead of the state's struggle against the Mafia had been slain in a ruthless terror attack. Yeah, but someone's just going to rise up and take his place, guys. It, the, the police, there's someone else who's crazy enough to be like, yeah, yeah, no, I'll take the, the murdered boss's job that he got murdered for. <laughs> Because there's brave people. But Falcone was not alone. His close associate, Magistrate Paolo Borsellino, was as dangerous to the mob, and he too uh, was soon to die. Another blast, another massacre took place in Palermo on the 19th of July, 1992. Borsellino and five of his bodyguards lost their lives. On that occasion, Brusca had not participated directly, but he later claimed responsibility for giving the order. 
a losing war. Rena Brusca and friends continued to litter the beautiful island of Sicily with more high-ranking corpses. Traditionally, some members of the political elite and senior civil servants had been faithful allies to the Cosa Nostra, but as the tide was turning against the mob, these friends in high places could not help them avoid jail time any longer. It was time to exact punishment for their ineptitude. Brusca personally led the hit squad, which had to whack one Ignazio Salvo. Mr. Salvo was the deputy boss of a small family in western Sicily, but he was also a prominent government supplier. He ran a company contracted with collecting 40% of all taxes in Sicily. That's a weird thing to do, like contracting that out, <laughs> especially to like the mafia. What could possibly go wrong with them handling so much money? As such, he held leverage and influence over local governments, but he had been unable or unwilling to protect his mafia associates. In the late evening of the 17th of September 1992, Savo had just driven back to his seaside villa just outside Palermo. The grounds were well protected by gates, fences, and walls. What Salvo had not accounted for, though, was an attack from the sea. Brusca's right-hand man, Jerry, and a third hitman reached the villa by motorboat. Silently, they made their way to the gardens and lay in ambush. As soon as Salvo climbed out of his white Mercedes, the trio opened fire with semi-automatic pistols and a rifle. Brusca and his boss, Toto Rena, may have been winning some battles, but it was clear that they were losing the war. Rena was a brutal ruler who exacted extreme measures not only against the state and the public, but also against his own underlings. Fearing death at the hands of the beast, many had agreed to collaborate with police forces turning informants. One of the most talkative ones was DiMaggio. It was thanks to intelligence he provided the crack team of Carabinieri... The Italian police force, why is it so hard to pronounce Carabinieri? Carabinieri arrested Toto Rina, the beast, the boss of bosses, on the 15th of January 1993. Another key informant was Santino De Matteo. His confessions helped magistrates build a case against those who had murdered their colleague Falcone. These were devastating blows against what was left of the Corleonesi. Briscovelt hounded, wounded, most of all, humiliated. Both informants belonged to his territory, to his family. They were, in theory, under his command. And yet, they had defected so blatantly to the enemy. This was an affront that the swine could not tolerate. His wrath was particularly directed at DiMatteo. That blabbermouth knew too much about Brusca's operations, his organization, and his dozens of murders. The swine could not slay DiMatteo directly. He was too well protected. But he had other means to silence him. The Puppy The 23rd of November 1993 started just like any other day at riding school for the 13-year-old Giuseppe. At his age, he was already a proficient equestrian and a promising show jumper. It looked like he could make a career out of horse riding, perhaps even compete in the Olympics one day. They have horse riding at the Olympics? I, I mean, I don't, does anyone actually watch the Olympics? Like, I don't think I watched a single event at the last Olympics, or the ones before that, or the one before that. I think they were in London a long ass time ago and i didn't see any of it i didn't go to it i didn't watch it on tv i think i saw an opening ceremony and that's about it i saw that one in china where they had all the drummers beating drums that was quite impressive wasn't it but that's all i know about the olympics there was horse riding <laughs> really show jumping what's that got to do with sport show jumping came with some risks of course 
bad falls could break bones. But Giuseppe knew it was a healthier career choice than the traditional family business, a business which came with many risks. For example, Giuseppe's fa father, Santino Di Matteo, had to live under tight police custody, lest he got a bullet to his brain. The 23rd of November 1993 did not end like any other day at a riding school for Giuseppe. A group of policemen showed up in two unmarked cars flashing lights on. They introduced themselves as officers of the Witness Protection Service. They were there to pick up Giuseppe and escort him to a safe location to meet with his dad Santino. Uh-oh, these guys are not police officers. Immediately I'm like, they're not cops. They're not cops. They're going to take you somewhere to be murdered. But you're 11 and you probably don't know any better. Or, like, or if someone comes up to you and says they're a police, ask for ID. Just have a look. And don't don't take a quick look at it. Look at that shit in depth. Giuseppe could not wait to hug his father after so many months and eagerly followed them. The young, trusting boy could not imagine that those officers were Brusca's men in disguise. It was the beginning of a two-year ordeal during which the Dematteo boy was held prisoner by the swine. His plan was simple. Pressure Santino Dematteo into silence. If he wanted to see his son alive, he had to stop collaborating with the authorities. But the ransom didn't work as intended. Quite the opposite. Dematteo was not cowed and continued to provide invaluable intelligence to prosecutors. Uh-oh. Then they're going to kill your son. It's the mafia, my dude, that you turned against. What are you up to? Thanks to his testimony, the magistrature was able to issue a life sentence, in absentia of course, to Giovanni Brusca for the murder of Salvo, the tax collector. When the swine heard the news, he slammed his fist on the table and shouted to an underling, Fine! Get rid of the puppy! Brusca gave the order on the 16th of January 1996 to be executed by his younger brother Enzo and two more assassins. I will leave it to one of them to describe how the puppy was put down. A little spoiler alert, I read ahead here. And uh, no, I, I, I didn't want to read it. Basically, they, they murder him. It's not particularly horrible murder, but it's still the murder of a child. So we're just going to skip over that. And then they all went to sleep. After an honest day's work, they had to recharge from all of that stress and exhaustion. Yeah, Arnaldo's point here, because obviously I skipped over the graphic details of the murder, Um, is they just don't have any feelings. They're like, yeah, yeah, no, it's cool. Now let's just go to bed and chill after murdering a kid. A few meters below their pillows, Giuseppe's remains. Um, yeah, so they, they got rid of the body. Um, I'm not going to... Let's just carry on. They're just there. They're just having a nap while they're like in the room where they killed him. These were the so-called men of honor, sometimes revered or even portrayed sympathetically in popular culture as some sort of folk heroes. It was in crimes such as this that the mafioso revealed their true face, little more than psychotic killers driven by half-assed business strategies no better than war criminals with an accountant on the side. On the swine's orders, they had abducted the puppy with a vile life, they had strangled him, and finally they'd got rid of his body. This was the final affront to Santino Di Matteo, the traitor, and to his entire family. The swine herd had denied the DiMaggio's the dignity of recovering a body that they could mourn. Yeah, um, they destroyed his body. There you go. To catch a swine. Since Brusca's escape from his compulsory stay, he had been in the crosshairs of police inspector San Filippo, head of the fugitive squad. On the 12th of January 1996, the squad had followed an informant's tip and raided a house belonging to Brusca. He wasn't there, but they found a photo of his five-year-old son, David. The following month, after the two thugs had killed Giuseppe, the puppy was arrested and decided to collaborate with Inspector San Filippo. 
one of them recalled that quote when brusca's ass is on fire he runs to agrigento meaning when brusca needs to disappear he hides around the agrigento province on sicily's southern coast another informant advised the cops to shadow a duo of drug dealing brothers in that area by wiretapping them san filippo found they often called a number which belonged to a 90 year old lady not only she lived in Brusca's hometown, but it turned out she owned two state-of-the-art mobile phones. This was certainly weird enough to warrant further investigation. It turns out those phones were actually used by a grandson, a butcher. And every night at 8 p.m., the butcher called another mobile located around Canatello, just south of Agrigento. Further wiretaps revealed that the butcher was ringing another butcher of a different kind. It was Giovanni Brusca. San Filippo sent six plainclothes officers to scout the area for weeks. Finally, in May, one of them spotted a familiar-looking kid. It was David, Brusca's son. The little boy was seen walking inside a small villa. Was the swine living there? How could San Filippo be certain? One of his deputies came up with a brilliant plan. They knew that every day at 8 p.m., Brusca was due to receive a call from his butcher friends, a call the cops would be listening to. So around that time, an officer would be sent riding a motorcycle around the villa. Oh, so they're going to hear it on the other end of the call. Like the, uh, The bike had a faulty muffler to make extra noise. If San Filippo's squad could hear the motorcycle noise in their 8 p.m. wiretap, bingo. It meant that Brusca was actually inside the villa. So, on the evening of the 20th of May, 1996, a cop and his demuffled bike set out on their mission. That night, the butcher was late and he ran Brusca only at 9 p.m., but the plan worked nonetheless. San Filippo's men heard the loud motor through their headphones. It was a go. Wait, so the guy with the loud bike's just been for like an hour just driving around this, like, what I assume is quite a quiet part of town. If I lived in the villa next door, I'd be like, the f guy with the bike, that dickhead. Ah! Inside the villa, also Brusca heard the din of the bike's exhaust. It may have been his criminal experience or an extreme case of precognition, but he immediately understood something was afoot. He hung up the phone and told his brother Enzo, standing next to him, we're done for. Indeed. A few seconds later, San Filippo and his 15-strong squad stormed the house. The inspector was the first to break in, preceded by a hail of stun grenades. His officers followed, pump-action shotguns leveled at the swine and his brother. The slayer of men was caught completely off guard and unarmed. The squad was quickly upon him, slammed him into the ground, and cuffed his hands behind his back. As the police searched the house, San Filippo noticed a curious detail. The TV was on. Brusca and his family were watching a movie. But not just any movie. It was a 1993 biopic called Giovanni Valcone. The Unthinkable Giovanni Brusca was rushed to the Palermo Police Headquarters, a tense two-hour car trip which tested the patience of Inspector San Filippo. Not because he feared ambushes or retaliation from Brusca's men, but because he had a hard time keeping his own men at bay. Many of them had been friends with policemen killed by Brusca. To put it simply, they wanted to just beat the living crap out of him. Yeah, it's like he's been murdering their mates. <laughs> of course they want to. According to Brusca's later declarations, he did suffer mistreatment when he reached the HQ. The keys to his handcuffs mysteriously went missing. To free his wrist, San Felipe had to call in the fire brigade, which used an electric belt sander to remove the shackles. The procedure left Brusca with two large scars on his forearms. Brusca also claims that after this incident, a young officer walked up to him. He was a relative of one of the bodyguards slain in the highway bombing. The officer grabbed a large frame photograph of magistrates Falcone and Bossanello and then smashed it on Brusca's face. This series of affronts may have warranted a ruthless revenge from the Slayer and his underlings, but Brusca recognized when he had been defeated. He was doomed to be buried under a multitude of life sentences, to use San Filippo's words. All of them had to be served in solitary confinement unless... Unless he did the unthinkable. Oh, he's gonna, like, turn, isn't he? 
he's gonna turn on his he's gonna become like um oh, they like an informant unless he accepted to cooperate with the authorities and become what he hated most in the world an informant initially he sought to play the system he provided false information contradicting depositions by other informants to undermine their credibility or when providing accurate intelligence it was to get rid of rival family members the magistrate soon uncovered his dirty tricks and issued a warrant for slander against the swine this set off the second phase of his informant career brusker appeared to sincerely repent for his criminal past or at least so he claimed in any case his late statements proved accurate and helped police forces get hundreds of arrests brusker's cooperation of course came at a price which the state agreed to pay his sentence was reduced from life to 30 years considering that he was responsible for the deaths of at least 150 people that makes about 2.4 months in jail per murder over the years the former slayer proved to be a model prisoner earning a further four-year discount on his sentence remember when he was arrested it was 1996 plus 26 years well you could do the math oh it's now it's literally like last month was it may when he was put in yes organized crime buffs among you may already know what comes next on the 31st of may 2021 oh did i do my maths wrong it was last year four five six no that should be now 2022 anyway let's see the swine the slayer was released on parole from his prison in rome he will have to report to the police station every week for the next four years and will likely have to live in hiding under witness protection for the rest of his life but he is otherwise free this event was controversial to say the least one of the rare occasions in which political parties from both sides of the spectrum agreed on something the fact that someone like brusker should not be allowed to walk free relatives of his victims had the same opinion but mr darahu italy's chief anti-mafia prosecutor defended this ruling as he declared to reuters regardless of what one may think of the atrocities he committed at the time there was a collaboration let us not forget that he gave us information on bombings in both sicily and in mainland italy rationally i can understand how the prosecutor's strategy of allowing some leniency to informants makes sense it has paid off in the past both against organized crime and terrorism and yet it's hard not to empathize with the grief and outrage of the victim's relatives i'd be keen to hear our viewers opinion on the matter should promises to informants be kept as a necessary evil in the endless struggle against crime i think yes of course because you need to catch people higher up who are worse criminals it's always a trade-off but also there's parole board and stuff right deciding whether he can be released or is it just when the end of your sentence is the end of your sentence then you can go free because that's that's pretty intense because this guy killed a lot of people i guess you can also like choose whether you like the deal that they're presenting you with right you can say like oh i like the idea of 30 or you can say no it's still your choice so i think this is fine so i think you have to have some sort of deal on the table for catching the the worst criminals don't you or shouldn't any mercy be granted to those who have killed and killed again so often and so brutally yeah i mean i think ideally they should go to prison forever but i also think if they're cutting a deal then you need to be able to do that that needs to be a possibility dismembered appendix Brisker's confessions unveiled a can of worms concerning alleged negotiations between the mafia and the state. Shortly before the assassination of Magistrate Falcone, Rina and the Corleonesi initiated secret talks with the government and the secret services. Their aim was to obtain immunity, impunity for the top echelons of Cosa Nostra. In exchange, the mob would refrain from launching a war against the institutions. Allegedly, they even involved the Minister of the Interior at the time, who denied the talks ever took place. The 
case remains murky to this day. And in any case, even if negotiations took place, they led nowhere. As we know, Brusker and friends proceeded to slaughter two magistrates and their escorts. Furthermore, Brusker was part of a criminal committee which ordered the planting of bombs in tourist hotspots in Florence, Rome, and Milan, claiming 10 dead and 82 wounded. During one of these committee meetings, Brusker even suggested unloading thousands of HIV-infected syringes onto Italy's most frequented beaches. Holy sh**, why? What, what you do? <laughs> what the f***? That's weirdly creative. The worst possible massacre was avoided by total chance. In 1994, the Colionesi pl planted a car packed with explosives and metal shrapnel right outside of Rome's main football stadium. The bomb was due to go off on Sunday afternoon after a match, right when the spectators were filing out and when anti-riot police squads were taking position. It would have been a slaughter of unseen magnitude. For some sort of miracle, the remote control malfunctioned, the bomb didn't go off, but it proved just how far these psychopaths were willing to go in their last-ditched efforts to strike back at a state that refused to be cowed. Yeah, and it's like, how are you negotiating? Well, yeah, don't come after us and we're not going to blow up your buildings. <laughs> the government's going to be like, f*** you, we're coming. <laughs> That's just how it works, because you don't negotiate with terrorists. I mean, or you don't publicly make it look like you're negotiating with terrorists because then there's more terrorists aren't there that's just how it's gonna work this has been an episode of the casual criminalist thank you so much for watching i felt we did quite well with the uh, all the people involved i felt like i got a little bit lost but it wasn't like super vital to the story which i still i don't want to say enjoyed because it's a horrible mafia story about what pieces of the mafia are but hey ho thanks for watching please leave a review and i'll see you next time Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.